Good morning. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you uh, to Bridgewater. So good to have you with us here this morning. We are wrapping up our series on Let's Stop Pretending. And, uh, you know, as we do, I used, you know, we usually start with some humor. I thought with the topic, I probably won't do that this morning. Um, but I wanted to say this. Here at Bridgewater, there are two reasons why we approach delicate topics. Um, number one is that people experience them. And number two, the Bible addresses them. So if you're asking, why are we dealing with this? Because this is reality for a lot of people. And so we're going to walk through some things this morning um, that are hard. Um, so if you have not had a chance to listen to the rest of the messages, you can go online. You can go on the Bridgewater app. I encourage you to do that. Um, they were very good previous messages, so, so please go ahead and do that. <clears throat> As we get started, I want to start with this quote by Gaius Julius Phaedrus, I think. Um, so here's this quote by him that says this. Things are not always what they seem. The first appearance deceives many. The intelligence of a few, perce a few perceive what has been carefully hidden. In other words, oftentimes, whether it's in marriage, dating, family, relationships, or even friendships, things may not actually be as good as is presented. I can recall someone who, this person would continually do drugs and illegal activities because of his friend. His friend would be verbally demanding and physically abusive if he didn't go along with him and continue to do the drugs and the illegal activities, and that would lead to a life of destruction. But it was because of the abuse of his friend. There are nine things. This is something that came out of someone, not, not myself, but a different therapist who spent years doing therapy. And so this particular study came out of that, and that is that nine things people want most out of life. Nine things. Number one is to be loved. Now, these are not necessarily right or wrong things. These are just things that people want. To be loved. Number two, to be understood. Number three, to have power. Number four, to have or to give attention. Number five, to have freedom. Number six, to create. Number seven, to belong. Number eight, to win. And number nine, to connect. So those are what generally people want most out of life. The psychologist Abraham Maslow explains in his hierarchy of needs, he talks about the fact that we have needs for food, water, for warmth, to feel secure, to feel safe, to feel a sense of belongingness. And in fact, Jesus himself addresses his addresses our basic needs by saying that he is the bread of life and the living water. So just like we need bread and water to live, we need Jesus to live. It's really important as we approach this today, we're going to be talking about the topic of abuse. And I ask for your patience as I go through. There may be moments where I pause. There may be moments where I cry. Um, because this is something I've 
lived and helped people with for many, many years. Abuse, according to Jeremy Pierre in his book, When the Home Hurts, writes this. Abuse occurs as a person in a position of greater influence uses his or her personal capacity to diminish the personal capacity of those under his or her influence in order to control them. Abuse happens all the time. Some of you are living in that world right now. Some of you know it and others do not. I would imagine that's also true even for the abuser. Some of you know you're abusing others, but others you might be abusing and you don't even know it. The reality is, though, abuse is wicked, it's evil, and God hates it. I want you to hear that right up front, right at the beginning, that God hates abuse. I'm going to walk you through some of these statistics that are hard to hear, but we're going to walk through it together. The first one is one in four women experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. One in seven men experience violence at the hands of an intimate partner. So we have... So last week, we had 238 in our auditorium through our three services. So let's say 128 of them were women. That means approximately 32 women that attended last week in this auditorium have likely experienced some form of abuse at the hands of an intimate partner. According to that statistic, 109 men out of that 238 that attended last week 15 men possibly could have experienced some form of abuse by an intimate partner. That means 47 people in our auditorium have possibly experienced abuse. Take note, that's just physical and domestic abuse. Almost half of all men and women in the U.S. have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Abuse is happening more than we know it. And we're going to shed a light on it. Did you know that one in five teen girls report at the threat of breakup to the boyfriend, he threatens to self-harm or to harm them? One in three women are sexually assaulted. One in six men have experienced sexual abuse or assault. Darkness is rampant. And there's so many people, so many of you, living under oppression. Darkness, evil, and wickedness, they're rampant, and God hates it. Today, I want to bring the abuse out into the light. I want to expose it for what it is, help us see God's heart for it. I've spent 20 years working in mental health before I became a pastor. I spent 17 of those years doing individual and group therapy, listening to people talk about their abuse. I would work five days a week and it would, it would rarely be a day that I would not hear about abuse. Numerous stories from adults who believe that they're worthless because they were told that constantly growing up. The stories of sexual abuse, physical abuse, as well as psychological abuse that really grieved my heart. I remember doing mental health therapy right here in Tunkhannock, and 
the receptionist would sometimes schedule three intakes in a day for me. And an intake would be basically I meet with someone for 60 to 90 minutes. I do, I collect all the information. Like, so basically it's their whole life, everything that's happened in their life, particularly the bad stuff, the stuff that hurts. And I would take that in and I would hear about abuse a lot. And I finally would say to the receptionist, I said, please, please not more than two in a day. I said, I said my heart can't take it. My heart couldn't simply take in doing three. I mean, two was hard enough, but taking, doing three in a day because it broke my heart to think about all this pain and all this hurt that this person was walking through. My heart would break for them. But it's not my heart that I want to talk to you about today. It's the heart of Jesus. I'm going to go into Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. And in this passage, Jesus has returned from Galilee. He just kicked off his public ministry. He's now come back to his hometown, Nazareth. Let's take a look at what happens. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. The blind will see and the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. He's saying, I've come to bring good news to the poor, set the captives free, and set the oppressed free. The word captive refers to a prisoner of war. Jesus has come to set those who have been taken captive the allusion here is to Israel, both as captive exiles and as prisoners of Satan in spiritual bondage. Jesus has come to set those who are being held captive physically and spiritually free. The word oppressed is a verb that means to cause something to be broken into pieces. To cause something to lose its validity, it means to break, to be oppressed, or to weaken. You see, God's heart is clear. He wants them to be free. He wants them to be free. I know that many in this room have experienced oppression. You've gone through some terrible things, wicked and evil things. An oppressor has oppressed you, maybe wreaked havoc or is wreaking havoc on your life. I want you to know that God sent Jesus to have a ministry of setting you free. Jesus never intended you to live that way, and he cares about you. I first want to acknowledge that there's so many types of abuse, physical, domestic, sexual, emotional, psychological, economic, verbal, spiritual, and endless combinations of them all. It is messy. And as I said, I've spent 17 years listening to people talk about their abuse, and today I'm going to try and educate us on this topic, maybe call some people out 
and hopefully give some people hope. So we're going to dive into some of these forms of abuse. First one, physical abuse, hitting, slapping, shoving, grabbing, pinching, biting, hair pulling are all types of physical abuse. This type of abuse also includes denying a partner medical care or forcing alcohol and or drugs. So this tends to be one of the one that becomes visible. Like oftentimes we can, you know, we can see when this happens, but sometimes we don't. Um, there was a story in the news recently where um, a mother uh, forced medical forced medical care instead of withdrawing medical care, forced medical care on her daughter, and said her daughter had all these sorts of diseases, and the daughter grew up this way of being basically unable to function because she was told, you can't do this, you can't do that. And she, all these treatments were forced upon her. And as an adult, she colluded with her boyfriend and her boyfriend killed her mother. Awful story. Awful, terrible story. And, and she agrees that she was wrong in, in, in what she did. But the reality is, is like, that was abuse. That was abuse that she experienced so much to the point where she, you know, had her mother killed. Many oppressors use intimidation to control those around them. Maybe using intimidating looks or gestures. Maybe smashing things, destroying victims' property, abusing pets or displaying weapons. Then we have sexual abuse. They're coercing and attempting to coerce any sexual contact or behavior without consent. Sexual abuse includes but is not limited to marital rape, attack on sexual parts of the body, forcing sex after physical violence that has occurred, or threatening one in a sexually demeaning manner. Then emotional abuse. Undermining an individual's sense of self-worth and self-esteem is abusive. This may include, but is not limited to, constant criticism, diminishing one's abilities, name-calling, or damaging one's relationship with their children. Some ways this might show up is by putting the victim down, making them feel bad about themselves, calling the victim names, playing mind games, humiliating the victim, making the victim feel guilty. Now, emotional abuse is a broad category, and there's many forms of non-physical control. It's difficult to identify because they're, they're not bruises on the outside. They're on the inside. And I want to be careful here because there are many good marriages which sometimes cruel words are exchanged. Anyone ever said cruel words to your spouse or to your boyfriend or girlfriend? I won't have you raise your hand. It's all right. Um, that doesn't mean that's abusive. All right. Um, and there's bad marriages that are not abusive um, where couples fight in hurtful ways, but it doesn't qualify as abuse. I also want to acknowledge that many in this room are experiencing emotional abuse and they don't even know it. When we're trying to determine whether emotional abuse is happening, we can't solely rely on just a list of things like name calling or blame shifting or cruelty. So I, w I do want to give a balanced approach here. I mean, acknowledge that this, is, this really isn't easy to navigate. That being said, emotional abuse can include verbal attacks that are said even quietly, other types of accusations that lie beneath the surface. But there's another form of abuse that maybe you might not have even thought about, 
and that one's right here. Economic abuse is defined as making or attempting to make an individual financially dependent by maintaining total control over financial resources without withholding access to money or forbidding one's attendance at school or employment. So you, what happens is you prevent the victim from getting or keeping a job. You, you know, stay at home. You can't do anything else. You can't uh, making the victim ask for money or for an allowance um, or simply taking the victim's money, not letting the victim know about or have access to the family income. All could be forms of economic abuse, which are in many cases connected to our next, um, next type of abuse, and that's psychological abuse. <clears throat> this includes, but is not limited to, causing fear by intimidation, threatening physical harm to self, partner, children, or partner's family or friends, destruction of pets and property, enforcing Isolation from family, friends, or school and work. This is closely related to emotional abuse. Controlling what the victim does, who the victim sees, who the victim talks to, where they go. Limiting outside involvement. And then using jealousy to justify their actions. I can't tell you how many times it's just that over and over again I hear like, well, you can't talk to that person because you're going you're gonna to cheat on me. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go out with your friends because you're going to, you know, you're, usually the, the cheating thing is brought up when there's no evidence of such a thing, okay? So je using jealousy to justify their actions. I'm allowed to control because you're going to do this or that. And then they justify their actions that way. And, one, and some of the ways that they do this um, are in these following tactics. The first one here is they minimize, deny, and blame. This is, they're, they're, they're making light of the abuse, and they don't take the victim's concerns seriously. They're saying the abuse didn't happen. Shifting blame, saying the victim caused it. I, I, like, how this, how this typically goes is, like, the abuser does something that's abusive, and then when confronted by the victim, the victim, they, they said, you did this. What? No, I didn't do that. What are you talking about? That never happened. You're just imagining things. Or they say, oh, it happened this way. No. No, it didn't, ha it didn't really happen that way. And then what, what tends to happen is then the person begins to question their own sense of reality. What, what, do, I, what do I even know? What do I even think or feel? Is, is, is anything that I think about real? And through that minimize, denying, and blaming, that what is what tends to happen. They don't even know what's real anymore after a while. And the second is they will use the children, making the victim feel guilty about the children, using the children to relay messages, using visitation to harass the victim, threatening to take the children away. So the children are just a tool to control the situation, to control and manipulate the situation. The next one there is male privilege, treating the victim like a servant, making all the big decisions, acting like the master of the castle, being the one to de define men and women's roles. No matter what, I'm not listening to you, what I say goes, you don't mean anything. The next one, coercion and threats. 
walk through this one continually, making and or carrying out threats to do something to hurt the victim, threatening to leave the victim, to commit suicide, to report them to welfare, making the victim drop the charges, making the victim do illegal things. I've watched this over, the, over and over. I've watched people sit in my office and cry because he said, they, they just left the house and we, you know, and then they did this and that and then I confronted them on it and then, and then they said they're going to kill themselves and they took off and then they're going to do something to myself, their, their selves, themselves and it's going to be my fault and they take that guilt on themselves. Coercion and threats. This is abusive. Reporting them to welfare, false reports to welfare, very common. So if you've been subject to any of what I mentioned, there's a good chance you've been living under oppression and have experienced abuse. If you're doing any of these things uh, that I've mentioned, it's not only wrong, it's evil and it's wicked and God hates it. It's oppressive and abusive. Like I said before, darkness is rampant. And room this size wouldn't surprise me to find out that half of us have experienced some form of abuse in our lifetime. Maybe you're here, you didn't even know you've been abused or oppressed. You thought it was normal. You thought life, this is just how it is. When you leave that environment, you feel better. I've walked through this with people that have said, I'm depressed, I'm having panic attacks. I'm experiencing all this anxiety. Okay, well, where is that happening? Uh, at home. I go, to, I go to work or school, it's not happening. I go out with my friends, it's not happening. I go out in the community, it doesn't, it's no symptoms. I go home, there the symptoms are. That's a red flag. All those emotions come flooding back. I want you to know that Jesus hates evil and wickedness. And the abuse you've experienced is not okay. God loves and cares for you and wants to set you free. But before we move on, I want to go into Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. Talk about what happens uh, in, our, in, in the heart of, of, of any of us that choose to entertain sin in our lives, what can happen. And then he added, it was what comes from inside that defiles you. From within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So notice here all these things that come from within us that we can, and, and if we allow it to, can cause us to put blame in all sorts of places. But we must be accountable for what comes out of the heart. When we choose to sin, it's on us. It's our responsibility to change. It's an overflow of what's happening in your heart. In other words, what you choose to focus on and dwell on in your heart. But for those of you who have experienced any form of abuse, there's something very important I want to tell you this morning. If you don't listen to anything else, please hear this, this part. The abuse is not your fault. The abuse is not your fault. 
You may experience all sorts of what's called false guilt as it relates to abuse. You might say, I should have done something. I should have done this or that. Remember that list from the beginning about what people want out of life? Well, abuse destroys that. And when abuse happens, it affects every area of our lives. And it becomes difficult to navigate even God's desire for your life. But it starts with not accepting blame when there's no need to. I found this difficult sometimes among Christians. Because, you see, as Christians, we all understand that we're sinners. So if someone is trying to manipulate and control us, right, then they're pointing out our sin. And we agree, right? We should... The Bible says that we're sinners. So sometimes it's hard to get out from underneath that when someone's telling you that, oh, well, see, you're a sinner too, right? And then then they begin to feel like, oh, that's right. So then they begin to only look at themselves and and justify the actions of the other person because they know they're a sinner. So um, particularly like with emotional and psychological abuse, the idea with... An abuser is to, is to obtain, to exert and maintain control. Many years ago, I spoke with this man about loving his wife. I said, you need to love your wife, and here's some scripture that you need to meditate on so that you had changed your heart. Well, he took those Bible verses, and he took them home, and he shared those Bible verses with his wife, and he said, Kurt said, this is what you need to do. That is emotional abuse. We may not think about it because it's related, oh, well, they're using the Bible. Yeah, they're using the Bible to abuse. It happens. And then I took a few deep breaths, you know, (sighs) No, and then and I, I, but I shared, I, I confronted him on that, and I, and in confrontation about that, this is the ultimate test in whether we're living in the spirit or in the flesh, and that's in Galatians chapter 5, where it talks about if we're honor God with relationships. Um, it says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is the evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives. I'm going to talk to you about four responses to this problem. And we're going to go into 2 Samuel chapter 11. um, And we're going to talk about David. Now, King David, he's the king of Israel. And the idea is when the army would go off to war, that the king would also go off to war with them. Right? But that's not what happens here. And let's take a look at it here in verse 1. Of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. See, King David, where was he supposed to be? He was supposed to be at war with his troops. And so he isn't serving others, he's serving himself. He's entitled. He says, hey, I can be here at home. David abused that power, and he sent Joab ahead of him to take care of the war. So our first response here is that we need to find ourselves in a position. If we find ourselves in a position of power and privilege, is that we must serve others. 
We must serve others. It doesn't begin with Bathsheba. It starts with David. A man in power, he didn't take responsibility. He didn't go to war with his troops. He didn't lead. He abused his power. Abuse in the home, in the church, or the workplace starts with abuse of power. Abusers leverage power to harm others. We need to serve. We need to be last. Men, you are called to lead, and leadership is about serving others. I know we all know this, but how many stories have we heard of those in power abusing it for their own good and to harm others? Going on in verse 2 of chapter 11. Late one afternoon after the midday, his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. All right? So notice David... He's here, he's shirking his responsibility to be at war. He's abusing his power. He's hanging out on the roof going for a stroll, and he sees this beautiful woman. This is a woman who's not his wife, and she's married to one of his soldiers. David has turned Bathsheba into an object. So the second response here is that we must, what we must do is we must value others. We must value others. In abusive situations, there's always a power imbalance. The target or victim is dehumanized and objectified. David sees this woman as an object. The target and the victim are always dehumanized and objectified. David is the one looking. Bathsheba's participating in this ceremonial worship. David is transforming her into an object of his desire. David doesn't see her as a citizen or someone made in the image of God. Abuse always includes power over and objectification. We need to value others. People are responsible for their actions. It's never about what they wore or what they drank or did. Abuse is about power over and objectification. God wants us to honor others and to value them. First, we should serve. Second, we should value others because God gave you people so that you could love them and not use them. Take a look at what happens next, verses 3 to 5. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uri the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her menstrual period, then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. He sends these guys, he sends his men to go get her. And when a king sends, people obey. They go and do. When when she did not have a choice whether she was going to leave her home or not. She was taken from her home. She didn't have a choice whether she was going to be with David or not. He abandoned his power and he objectified another man's wife. Then he sets up Bathsheba's husband where he says, her husband's in war and he tells the troops, all right, everybody get up there and then you all stand back so that her husband is killed in war. For David, it was all about him. And even though the text doesn't say it, he forces her to come 
and be with him. So third, we must be people who we must empower others. We must empower others. Men and women, some of you have entered into marriage or dating and you think, how can you benefit me? How can you lift me up? How can you make me important? Instead of serving our families, we oppress others. We need to empower instead of oppress. David sent men to go, and when you send men to go, they go. Uriah is murdered. The king abuses his power. Men, you were called to empower your wives. We must use our power to help others to step up and lift them up. Remember, we talked about honoring others in week one of this series. I want to tell you how this all ends in chapter 12 of of, uh, 2 Samuel. The prophet Nathan comes and he confronts David. And he tells him a story. He said, there was a rich man who had 100 sheep. And even though he had 100 sheep, he looked at the poor man and the poor man had one sheep. And he goes and he takes that one sheep from him, from the poor man. And then David gets furious and he says, that's terrible. He needs to be punished. The prophet Nathan says, you are that man. He confronts David and says, you are that man. You took Bathsheba from her husband. So let's pause for a moment because David obviously is making some very bad decisions. Nathan comes and confronts him. And, and Nathan, coming before the king like this, was brave. He could have just killed him right then and there. But Nathan, who's called by God, goes to the king and says, you are the problem. Many times abuse goes unnoticed and unconfronted. And by God's grace, we see that David accepts the accountability from Nathan and he repents. You can read about his repentance in Psalm 51. The last way we must respond is that we must accept accountability. Abusers don't like accountability. Nathan comes to confront David and he repents. We need to have conversations and invite and accept accountability. See, David is a type of Christ that I believe that God intentionally designed David to predict or point to Jesus. He was a king, he was a shepherd, and he was a mighty warrior. He's a type of Christ. But unlike Christ, David was limited, he was flawed, and he was sinful. And when he was tempted, he abused and oppressed. But Jesus, the ultimate side, the king of kings, the good shepherd, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, he didn't grab power for himself. He emptied himself. Jesus came to serve, to die, and to rise again so that we could have life, so that we could be, have hope, so we could be set free. There's hope for change because we know that God can and does change hearts. I'm sure many of you are wondering, where is the hope if the oppressor chooses not to submit themselves to God? Where is the hope if the oppressor doesn't relinquish the power and control? As a victim, your hope needs to be anchored in something more than the possibility of the abuser's repentance. Your hope needs to be anchored in Jesus Christ. Your hope needs to be anchored in Jesus. So what do we do? What do we do moving forward? If, you've, if you're here this morning and you've realized that what you've been doing constitutes as, as abuse, maybe you're here and you've heard the strong language that I've used and it's pricked your heart. I don't want you to leave here and say, 
oh, I'm an evil person. I guess there's no hope for me. No. I want you to recognize your sin and repent. You see, we talked about King David who was abusive in his authority. He took another man's wife and he had her husband killed in war. There was hope for David as he repented of his sin and he committed to changing his ways. And the scriptures talk about David. What do we hear about David? That he was a man after God's own heart. So there is hope. There is hope. I encourage you, if you need to repent, please come have a conversation with me or one of our leaders or someone with a name tag afterwards. Have that conversation. Email me, kurtg at bwater.org. Please, um, don't let that end here. And for those of you who have been a victim of abuse, you don't have to continue to be a victim. You could be a survivor. Through Jesus, who binds the hearts of the brokenhearted, you can be healed. I encourage you to have that conversation. Talk to me or one of the leaders about this. It doesn't have to be today, but I encourage you not to let it go. Ladies, I, this, if this is you, I strongly encourage you to attend the IF conference. It's not just because my wife is promoting it. Okay, um, my wife attended, attended that conference live, and she said that if those that are struggling with this, they could experience healing. They could begin to experience healing here. And so my prayer is that you will all sign up for it, but I, I, do, I think it will be a, a beginning of a process to heal broken hearts. We've included a handout on your way out that talks about the types of abuse and the resources that are available uh, to you. Um, I encourage you to talk about it in small groups this week. Your small group leaders will get um, uh, discussion questions and additional resources um, to, to be able to uh, walk through these things with you. I encourage you to talk about it. Bring this into the light. If you're here and you've not experienced abuse, I can guarantee you that you know someone who has. Please be an encouragement and a source of light and hope to them. Let's take a stand against the evil of this world. Jesus will build and will heal his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We call abuse into the light, and all those burdens we give to Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you have sent your son Jesus to bind the hearts of the brokenhearted. We thank you, God, that you not only offer us salvation, God, but you offer us healing. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one in here, God, that they would either come to know you today or they would experience your love and your grace and know how much you love them. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.